0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and this is the Truth of the Matter. This is the podcast where we break down the policy issues of the day. Since the politicians are having their say, we will excuse them with respect and bring in the experts, many of them from CSIS, people who have been working these issues for years. No spin, no bombast, no finger pointing, just informed discussion. In today's episode of The Truth of the Matter, I'm flying solo as Bob Schieffer is out of town. To get to the truth of the matter about a really fantastic new book, one that I've already sent to three or four of my friends. It's called Pappyland, a story of family fine bourbon and the things that last. I have with me the esteemed ESPN sports writer, Mr. Wright Thompson. Right, Thompson, it is so amazing to have you here to get to the truth of the matter, not just about bourbon, not just about Pappy Van Winkle, but really, this book isn't really about bourbon at all, is it?
1: Oh, I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. My day job is writing for ESPN, and I joke that those stories I write for them are barely about sports, and this is just barely about bourbon. I mean, I'm sneaking Thomas Merton in through the back door, you know? Yeah. (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, the thing that struck me, you know, I got this book day one. I was on the advance list because I heard about it. And I like bourbon as much as anybody else. I grew up in Maryland. And I think the first time I ever saw a bottle of bourbon, it was on the back of a Leonard Skinner album cover and, you know, learned it from there. And then, you know, going to Tulane, of course, you learn a lot about your choice of uh, spirits and bourbon was mine. So, but I never really knew about fine bourbon until later. And then I got to taste Pappy for the first time and I loved it and it was different, but I'm by no means a connoisseur, but I love the lore around great bourbons and I love the brands around great bourbons. But what struck me about your book was it's about American life. It's about family. It's about sons and fathers and about a way of life that we've all tried to grapple with in one way or another, isn't it?
1: What I really wanted it to be, like not America writing the letter, but like dispatches from. Because one, I mean, just we could go down an entire rabbit hole in the way that you could lay a history of the urban rural divide in American life right alongside the history of whiskey. I mean, like one of the things I love is that, you know, after the American Revolution, they had to figure out how to pay for it. And no one wanted to pay for it everyone wanted to be free, but no one wanted to pay for it. And so Alexander Hamilton lived in New York City, which was full of bars. And like at that point, you know, I mean, you've read those books about what New York was like then. I mean, rough bars. And so to him, he was like, well, let's tax whatever they're drinking in these bars.
0: It was a sin tax.
1: Let's have a sin tax. And George Washington was like, "Eh, here's the thing you don't understand. All of this whiskey The only reason people are making it, no one was trying to like be good at a craft. It was just farmers who were so far away at the very end of a supply chain that their rye and corn was going to rot before it got to market. And so somebody was like, well, what if we turned it into something that doesn't rot? I mean, it's no coincidence that whiskey cultures arise often alongside of pickling cultures and alongside of like country ham cultures. And so, you know, the whiskey tax was conceived by someone who lived in a city, and every single piece of information he was using to make that decision was 100% accurate. I mean, Alexander Hamilton was totally right. It was a sin tax. And yet it was also, at the very same time, a tax on the most vulnerable and disenfranchised rural Americans. And like, I just, you're writing a book that's coming out a week after this election, It becomes really interesting when you realize that, God, Faulkner was a genius. I mean, the past isn't past at all. I found it really was both about American history and the history and fragility of the American experience, as it was those things you spoke about, you know, our better angels, family, home, inheritance.
0: You know, it really struck me in getting into Land, the book, you don't get too far before you start talking about the Whiskey Rebellion and about how we're still, as Americans, fighting this same argument between Hamilton and Jefferson. And the result of that, of course, the syntax that Hamilton wanted to put on to whiskey makers and drinkers and all kinds of people is kind of the same argument we're having nowadays between people who live in big urban cities or suburbs and people who live in rural areas. Did you find that as well?
1: I mean, you find that the conversations haven't changed at all. I mean, we have different mechanisms for having them, but we're still having the same fight over and over and over again. And it's interesting the degree to which, I mean, I hate to get on a soapbox, but like everybody's wrong because everybody thinks they're all right and that everybody who disagrees with them must be a moron. And the problem is that, We've been having this exact fight since the very beginning because there's a reason countries aren't this big. There's a reason Europe is 19 different countries or whatever. And it's because this is a, always a very fragile thing. And so, like, when you really go deep into the history of whiskey, you have to choose to be part of a tribe. And, like, you know, one of the things the book really explores is the myths that sustain a tribe and also inject sort of irrevocable rot into it. You know, the idea that, like... You have to just agree that we're going to have this story that we all use as a foundation. And it's so interesting that, you know, Kentucky, which people consider the South, right? I mean, Kentucky was in the Union. I mean, there were 100,000 Kentuckians in the Union Army and 30,000 Kentuckians in the Confederate Army. And it's just so perfect that bourbon is famously made in a place that now pretends it lost a war that it actually won. <laughs> <laughs> right. Unpack that for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Because I, I don't really know how, except that there's something really interesting.
0: And did you find when you were writing the book and you were talking to all the people that there were a lot of Southern myths that do go along with bourbon and that seep into the way people think and seep into politics? Did you find that constantly as a theme?
1: Just that, yeah, that there are myths that should have been torn down a long time ago. You know, it's interesting that like they're trying to take down the Confederate statue here in Oxford which the Board of Supervisors voted to keep five to nothing. We didn't get a single vote. And I was one of the people, they asked to write a letter. And I was basically just like, first of all, there are Confederate monuments in 28 states, I think. There are Confederate monuments in states that weren't in the Confederacy, which is hilarious. And so like, the thing I said in my letter was, my father's name was Walter, his father's name was Fraser. his father's name was Fraser. his father's name was T.A., his father's name was Benjamin, and Benjamin is a Confederate veteran. And that statue on the square has absolutely nothing to do with those people, and it is 100% about the lost cause mythology. There's a guy I interview in the book named Charles Reagan Wilson, who's an expert on the lost cause mythology, and he had this great line like, when you've sold it as a holy war, how do you then move on from the fact that you lost a holy war? The myths and the architecture of self-deception that has to be erected in order to deal with the fact that you told everybody that God wanted you to win and now you lost. And like, it's just crazy the degree to which that still exerts gravitational pull on our daily discourse. And the other thing Charles Reagan Wilson said that was so smart was, you know, the Irish remember the defeats long after the English have forgotten the victories. A lot of us took that for granted. But you know, like you said, all of that plays out. Those are all strings that are plucked at various times and then vibrate throughout the book.
0: Do you think that's why bourbon itself, it's more than just a spirit? There's something about drinking bourbon that has a depth. Because Pappy is is clearly the king of all bourbons, right? And it's the hardest thing to get. And we can talk about that in a minute. But you point out in the book that brands and brand names actually come from whiskey.
1: That's it. I mean, just, you know, if if you think about the word that best sums up the just utter disregard for truth in modern society. It is the word brand. I mean, all brand means is a shiny lie. I mean, that started with whiskey. There's something interesting about the fact that bourbon, especially aged bourbon, which is what we're talking about, it sits in barrels for a really long time, and then it goes into the bottle. And so in some ways, there is a something of the world in which that was created lives in the bottle. And so when you take the top off it, there's this brief sort of metaphysical intersection of two different time frames and periods. And it doesn't last long and it's very, very fragile, but it is also very, very real. And there was a Dolly Parton podcast, Dolly Parton's America or something. Yes. And there was this thing in there where somebody said, nostalgia comes from the Greek words for home and pain. And Mm -hmm. that feels perfect to me because each of these bottles each of these things, literally it's a message in a bottle that is on one hand full of melancholy and loss. The humans stand against that inexorable melancholy and loss. And so like the fact that it is simultaneously both things, I think makes it very interesting and different than say vodka.
0: Yeah. What do we learn from the brand? You put it really eloquently just now that, you know, It's a shiny lie. And, you know, we've seen in our politics and in our culture that everybody now is so obsessed with building their own brand. And whiskeys live on this brand. I mean, even Bob Dylan's got his own brand of whiskey now. Does he really? And it's a very good whiskey. It's heaven's door. That's funny. And, you know, Tennessee whiskey, not Kentucky whiskey, but, but a good whiskey. You know, everybody's trying to build this mythology. Everybody's trying to build this brand among themselves, not just whiskey makers. Where do you think that comes from?
1: I mean, one, I think it's that, you know, I write profiles of people for a living. And the thing I found is that everybody has a story that they tell themselves about themselves. And then there's a story that other people would tell about them. And both of those things are simultaneously true and also not true. And the thing I want to do when I'm writing a profile is figure out how those two things talk to each other. Because, like, the real thing lives in between. You know, it's interesting. Like, Bob Woodward wrote that book about John Belushi. Yeah. And it is fabulously well reported. And it is a terrible, failure, awful book because he was so into the things he was reporting. He left out the single most important part of it, which is that people loved John Belushi and wanted to save him. And He could be incredibly generous and kind. And so without that, you just have a litany of one guy's fuck-ups. And it's not interesting. And the greatest sin is like narratively, it was just two-dimensional and stillborn because there were no stakes for any of this. It was just another Hollywood asshole killing himself as opposed to like a generationally beloved person killing themselves. And so I think that I like to be somewhere between the book that John Belushi's widow is going to write and the book that Bob Woodward is going to write. Because both of those things are true, but it's in how they talk to each other that the actual, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. It's such a memorable book because I I mean, I remember reading it, you know, when I was a teenager and vividly reported about how he was killing himself, but none of the genius of John Belushi comes through and certainly none of the humanity.
1: The only detail I remember from that book is Dan Aykroyd getting the phone call while he's writing Ghostbusters in his office in New York City. He gets a call from John's agent or someone who was like, look, he's dead. This is breaking any moment. And Dan couldn't get through to Judy Belushi. And so he runs from his office to John and Judy's place in the West Village to try to get to her before she turns on a radio or a television. And like the image of this incredibly famous person who really was just a best friend. Anyway, it's a long way of saying that everybody has a myth of themselves. Like I have a myth of myself that I try to be really rigorous about interrogating because it's how you get in trouble, you know, and yet it is also armor. So those ideas are both presented and then interrogated
0: in the book. You know, it's fascinating that you said this because my friend Stanley Booth, the writer, who wrote the great book, The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones. He always told me, you know, I don't write about music. I write about people. And I found that from him to be fascinating, because this is a guy who profiled Memphis musicians like Furry Lewis and Jim Dickinson and everybody, you know, Rolling Stones and ZZ Top and just, you know, so many great musicians. But for him, it was never about the music. It was always about the people. And that's kind of what you do. Well, I mean, I'm interested
1: in art as an expression of the people who make it or craft, I guess is a better word, you know, in this case, a bourbon maker. So that's more craft than art. But I mean, that's a semantical thing. I'm interested in the deeply personal things that are going on underneath the surface of something that is very public. I mean, you don't get more sort of well-known in the liquor business than Van Winkle. And yet, when you realize that, you know, Julian's grandfather started a distillery and then his father lost it. And then Julian was sort of out in the wilderness because he didn't know what else to do. And he felt he owed this debt to his father and his grandfather. Each bottle becomes a talisman of that idea. When Julian got really interesting to me was when I realized people think he's flying around on a fucking Gulf Stream. And that is just not true. They're paying back the last of the loans this year. Which is extraordinary. And so it became interesting when I realized there was a series of conversations that like, oh, he wasn't doing this because he believed that the success they've now achieved was coming. You hear all these stories of people who just believed in themselves and in their, the power of their idea. If they just worked hard, they would make it. That's not what this is at all. Julian's thing is much closer to what real life is like, and he was not trying to achieve a financial or even sort of public business victory. His thing was much more personal, and I think it was about going down with the ship about trying to maintain honor in the face of defeat. I think it was what he owed his father and grandfather. This was never about hanging on till you make it. This was about failing with honor and dignity.
0: Yeah, I, I got that from that. I really got that, that it was about his dignity and not just about his father and his grandfather, but about his children.
1: And just who we are. And like you teach by doing and like whoever he wants his kids to be is based on the things he does, not the things he says. And so that's when it got really interesting to me because it's cartoonish to be like, I'm going to stick around until I make it. It's really poignant to be like, I'm sinking with this ship.
0: Yeah. I like how his daughters would tell stories about how he didn't have much and he would go out to the distillery that he put his life savings into rebuying because they had lost the famous Stitzel Weller distillery. And he was out there, you know. Come home bleeding from you know hard work and, and stuff like that, and he persevered.
1: He just didn't quit. I mean, that's what living is. You know, it's not this now. This is a fairy tale they're living in now. But like all of that work somehow lives in the bottle, you know, and all of that is implicit in it, in its current existence. And so I feel like when you have it in your hands you're holding some piece of that idea. And again, I mean, maybe I'm just totally biased, but I just don't feel like Jen does that.
0: It doesn't. And I think anybody who watches James Carville on MSNBC, and I know you must've heard about this. Well, you know,
1: he borrowed the book. So part of me wonders if that was- Oh
0: man, let me tell you, he did because- During the election coverage, he's got a bottle of pappy sitting right behind him. Oh, I know. And he starts talking about how he's going to have to wait a couple of days to crack it open. And he starts talking about how it's about $300 an ounce. And he told everybody to put away their razor blades and their Ambien. Oh, (laughs) I know. no. I mean, James
1: Carville. I mean, like, it is a glorious thing to get to a point in your life where you just really don't give a fuck. Yep. (laughs) It's true. And he just doesn't care. He's sitting there. You're like, this guy is so comfortable on television now. Yeah, and he also understands that this is all a farce. Like he just is. He refuses to take it seriously. It's like I love the TV show The West Wing, and there's that great thing where Leo McGarry is like, you just refuse to accept the premise of the question. That's the best interview advice ever. And I feel like he just lives that. He's like, I'm not. You can ask me whatever you want, but I'm here to say what I'm here to say.
0: Well, I always loved him because this is a guy who, when he was teaching at Tulane, he would go on the air. And the Chiron would say, Tulane Professor James Carville, but he'd have an LSU hat on. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
1: Oh, my God. You know, when he went on game day and went deep in on the uh, SEC Deep State Alabama, that's just the funniest thing I've ever seen. Funniest
0: thing ever. I had to speak at a conference once right after him. And, man, I'll tell you, you can't follow James Carville. (laughs) I had to follow Jimmy Buffett once
1: at a private event in which he stood up. And he had done some research and changed the words to fucking Margaritaville to be making fun of people in the crowd and then handed out margaritas. And I had to go up there and talk about a story I'd written after that. Oh,
0: man. <laughs> that takes that takes. I just king.
1: couldn't believe it was happening. I was just sitting there watching like, this is a waking nightmare. Because not only am I following Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett could have flopped. Instead, Jimmy Buffett killed. And now I got to go up on stage after that.
0: I'll tell you one thing, though, right? People like me treasure your words. And when they get their hands on this book, it's going to be on their shelf for a lifetime. And it's going to be something that they give to their kids. I've already sent this book to three of my friends.
1: Dude, thank you very, very much. My kids need new shoes. Keep doing it.
0: I will. I will. (laughs) And I've got three sons and they're all teenagers and they're all going to be reading this Pappyland, a story of family, fine bourbon and, and the things that last You know, I think every American should read this because, you know, I just want to read one passage because our listeners need to hear this. The book has some poetry. You know, you write that you can see all of the distilleries together from high enough in the clouds and their lumbering houses and brick chimneys blur and erase the idea of time and history, pressing them together into one American dimension. The farming past, the marketing present, and a future that offers the possibility that our best days are ahead or have already peaked running on the fumes of whatever national spirit sent us first to Kentucky and then on to California in wagons, in cars, on planes, on fiber optic cables buried beneath the farms and Buffalo Plains. That's really something, man. That's,
1: look, I'm blushing. That's very kind of you. I felt really in touch with something that I didn't intend to be when I was writing. I mean, I, I started and threw away a bunch of versions of this because I just, you know, it was going to be a whiskey book and I found the most interesting things I was thinking and the most interesting conversations I was having with Julian were about everything but whiskey. So I kept writing it and I just was like, well, this is a nightmare because the best version of this I experienced and I can't figure out how to pass that on to the reader. And it just, every, I hated everyone more than the one that came before. So finally I just was like, I'm going to write this as I experienced it. I didn't tell anyone at Penguin. I just did it. And then I got about a third of it done. And then I sent it to the editor at Penguin and was like, you know, that thing we talked about, well, I didn't do any of that at all. I did something <laughs> totally fucking different. So I hope that that's okay. And they liked it. the God, but I felt in touch with the American highway or something, yeah. this idea of us and the fact that it was you know, all happening during, I mean, it's weird. I spent the entire Trump presidency talking and thinking about the past hidden in a bottle and talking to people who live on the margins. And so I did, I felt really in touch with the American road and the American roadside and the mythology of all of that and what that mythology offered, but also what it obscured. Do you see better
0: things ahead for our country?
1: You know, it's really interesting because it's a really fragile moment. I mean, I've spent a lot of time reporting in Argentina and people forget Argentina was like the fifth biggest economy in the world when Juan Perón took over. Right. And they basically bounced back and forth since him between Peronism and extreme reactions to it. And so Argentinian philosophers and South American scholars have spent lifetimes trying to define Peronism, and it's not easy to do. But I I think the simplest explanation is that it is a world without reality. Peronism has changed 12 times since he died. And it just means there's no such thing as truth, and there is no tribe of us. And I don't know that Argentina will ever escape that. And you worry that that's happening, and that our Peronism is Trumpism. And like, no disrespect to the 70 million Americans who voted for him. I mean, like, I'm talking about it on above politics, like just looking down at like what is required to have a civilization. And there has to be some shared postage stamp of common ground. And one of the reasons I think we had such a long period of stability is that you had all of these people of every different political persuasion who all went to war together. And so it was pretty hard to demonize someone. And now it's very, very easy. And so I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think that either we're going to bounce back and forth between the extreme left and the extreme right until we fall apart, or we're going to have to have someone who comes along who can articulate a new idea of us. Because the old idea of us which it's fashionable for Americans of a certain sort of economic status and political persuasion to beat up on America, but we are the only people who've ever tried this. And so having a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious country, I mean, I think we're the only people who've ever really done it, or even tried it. You know, I'm sitting here thinking, and I don't really think there is another one. There's some of them that do two of those things, but nobody who's trying 3 of them and certainly not over such a broad swath of land and so like everybody's going to have to realize that there has to be a tribe of us or we're in Denumon now. I mean, I don't know if I'm right about that. I'm a fucking sports writer. No one should be listening to anything I think about this. They should listen to you, by the way, not me. <laughs> well, well, thank you
0: for that, but you know, it, it's funny because you see in both parties you know, take the Democratic Party right now. There's going to be an internecine war in the Democratic Party between the liberal wing of the Democratic Party and the centrist wing of the Democratic Party. And how's that going to play out? And it's very hard for everybody to get on the same page. There's a great column in the New York Times by Thomas Edsall the other day about how the Democratic Party has a hard time managing itself because there's so it's so diverse. And the Republican Party might have a little bit of an easier time because it's, its ideas are less diverse. But what you're saying rings true to me. And we need to get on the same page at some level in America if we're gonna be able to soldier on.
1: I loved Joe Biden's victory speech because, I mean, that's an America I wanna live in where there are people I disagree with who aren't my enemies. You know, I have a lot of family members who voted for Donald Trump. And sure, I don't hate them. And I think I changed a couple of minds. if you're an activist who've never changed another human being's mind, you need a new profession (laughs) because you're really bad at this one. But like, the other thing, though, is I have friends who would tell me I am naive and that I am believing in some myth of an America that never existed, right? That I want some sort of easy, moderate stability that has always existed with a boot on someone else's throat. Do you know what I mean? And so, like, I need to learn more. I think we all need to, like... That's what I meant by the new tribe of us. We got to go to school now, you know, and like figure out what to keep and what to throw away and how we can agree on enough of it to have a country.
0: That is for sure. So my final question is this. Why is it so hard to get a bottle of happy? and how does one get a bottle of happy? I mean, I'm in a lottery at the Maryland, you know, in Maryland, we sell liquor through state-owned stores. And the liquor store near me, you, you got to get into a lottery to get a bottle. And so I haven't, you know, I haven't won yet, so we'll see. But how the heck do you get one?
1: Well, a couple of things. One, you have to get in a lottery. Say 20 years ago, they were putting out, say, 2,500 cases. Now they're putting out 9,500 cases, roughly. It's almost impossible to get. The other real problem is I've gotten in trouble talking about this because, like, I committed the greatest sin, which is I told the truth in public, but (laughs) state liquor boards, not uniformly, but a lot of them are very corrupt. Mm -hmm. And so the way the States allocate them, like somebody needs to do an investigative story about that. And Mm -hmm. I think that might explain uh, one of the reasons it's so hard to get, but that's a minor thing. The main reason it's so hard to get is that way more people want it than it exists. And Julian and his family have lived through the bust of the bourbon business. And so, you know, people are asking, why don't you just make more? Well, Julian is putting stuff in barrels right now that he'll die before it hits a bottle. You know, he's got to pass this thing on to someone. And is he willing to bet his family's, his children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren's future on the fact that America is going to want to still be drinking this in 20 years? So he is very concerned. I mean, you know, he also is trying to not get so caught up in the fever that he puts them in a situation where today's success actually ensures tomorrow's doom. So he's playing a long game in a way that you and I aren't.
0: Right. So basically, you can buy it for a fortune on a secondary market, which is crazy because you're talking about 3000 and up.
1: And here's the thing. Somebody has a Buffalo Trace capper. I don't know where they got it. But some of these counterfeits out there are real. Like you can't tell the difference until you open the bottle. What's interesting is all the ones they confiscate get sent back to the distillery and Julian
0: tastes them. Wow. And some of them are pretty good counterfeits too, I bet. That's
1: what he says. He's like, some of these are like, I don't know what, this isn't our whiskey, but they're not just putting Jim Beam in here, you know, or whatever.
0: It's pretty good. Well, Ray Thompson, this has been a real pleasure something that I know our listeners will savor like they would a, a, a nice glass of pappy. We thank you for your time today, sir.
1: Absolutely, and by the way, if you're a smart person and you disagree with uh, my political opinions, I'm a sports writer, I cover football, I'm doing the best I can.
0: <laughs> God bless you, my brother. Thank you so
1: much. All right, see you, bud.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chess Board,